Psalm 49. We're continuing our series in the book of Psalms this morning, Psalm 49. Uh, as an update, next weekend, uh, Pastor Josiah Finneram will be here preaching for you. Uh, and I'll be preaching at his church there in West Jeff Galloway area. Uh, and then after that, that that'll be the, the end of the pastor's rotations through the summer. And then I'll be here with you all fall and for the rest of your lives. Um, so, <laughs> Psalm 49. Uh, let's read this, and then we'll get into it. Hear this, O peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for the, the words of this psalm specifically, but for the words of scripture uh, in its entirety. Lord, we pray, Lord, as we meditate this morning, on this text, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand, minds to comprehend the great truth of this psalm. Lord, we need your help. We pray you help us believe that you will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the trends of the last five or six years in Christendom, in the, the Christian faith community, uh, is what's called deconstruction. Deconstruction. Uh, this is where uh, perhaps well-known, perhaps famous Christians have recanted their belief in Christ and have left the faith. This movement is known as deconstructionism primarily because of the way in which individuals go about trying to think through their faith. And in so doing, they begin to peel back the layers of what it is they say they believe, spurned about because of a particularly hard question. And so the process goes questioning doubting, and ultimately rejecting aspects of Christian faith. These people who are partake in deconstruction are colloquially known as deconstructionists. A few weeks back, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine 
uh, about a relatively recent, uh, well-known deconstructionist. And my friend, uh, he made the point, he made the argument that uh, it must be nice for those who got to label these folks as deconstructionists. He's a, he's a rather liberal Christian, progressive Christian, uh, and, and he was arguing that, uh, that these people are not deconstructionists, Matt, he said. He said they're simply people who are no longer willing to accept the faith as it has been handed down to them without critically thinking through it. So on this point, I pondered for a moment, and I said, you know what, I, I agree with you. Those who would um, contend with their faith in an intellectual way to, to think through it critically, uh, I would agree. Those people are not deconstructionists. You see, we should not believe things simply because our parents believed them or our grandparents. Although that is a good starting place. We must all come to wrestle with what it is we say that we believe. However, I told my, my good friend, if at the beginning, or at, at the beginning of wrestling with these questions, uh, the hard questions of the faith, uh, I, I agree with, it's the ending result that I disagree with him. You see, if at the end of the wrestling, we stand back and look at the things we believe in and realize that we no longer accept Jesus Christ as Lord, then, my friends, we have deconstructed and left the faith. This well-known deconstructionist we were talking about that morning over coffee, um, who was in the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately rejecting the Christian faith, said that for him, it seemed as if the church never got around to answering the hard questions of life. And this is one of the common themes. If you read deconstructionist stories, which uh, I encourage you to, with an eye to see what it is that they're really saying, this is a common theme of people who have left the faith. They were unable to answer hard questions. Questions like, who am I? Who is God? What is the church? If God is good, then why is there so much evil in the world? How can the Bible be God's word if it was written by men? How should we handle the suffering we always see around us? These are the questions that those who have deconstructed their faith have looked to the Bible for answers or looked to their Christian communities and found the answers lacking. My friends, this morning I believe Psalm 49 takes up for us one of the hard questions. In fact, I think one of the primary thrusts of the Psalms in its entirety is to actually answer the hard questions of life. You see, Psalm 1 opens for us uh, the trajectory of all the Psalms, which is namely that there are two ways to live, but only one way to life. The way of the wicked man who will perish and the way of the righteous man who will flourish. And so the question Psalm 49 answers for us this morning is this. In times of trouble... Where should we turn? In times of trouble, where should we turn? Psalm 49 is considered to be a wisdom psalm, and it's part of a group of psalms that ranges from Psalm 42 to 49 that come from the sons of Korah, which was a Levitical family. I won't get into all the history. It's a Levitical family that became part of the singers and musicians whom David appointed to minister with song at, uh, at the temple, at the house of the Lord. And these eight psalms, 
together, together, 42 to 49, have within them a, a sort of flow. And so the opening psalms of this section are, are, are psalms of laments. If you get into Psalm 42, it opens like this, and, and which I know a lot of people put this on a, on a coffee mug, but it's, it's really a lament. It's, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? See, the opening Psalms of 42 to 49 express a longing for restoration by God. Psalm 43, verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then we get to the middle of this section, uh, Psalm uh, 90, uh, or 40, Psalm 45 begins uh, to express hope, which leads then to an emphasis in the, the latter half of these collection of Psalms that, that, that God is the refuge and security for the city of God. You see in Psalm 46 verse 1 it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In Psalm 48, verse 14, it says that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So you see, the collection of Psalms 42 to 49, while can be taken independent of each other, understand that they are, in fact, one thing here. Finally, this collection of Psalms ends with God is the refuge and security for the people of God who will be redeemed from their trouble. That's our Psalm this morning, but notice before wrestling with this deep question of where do we turn to in times of trouble, notice how the psalmist opens. It isn't like a great majority of psalms which are calls to praise God because of one of, one of his defining attributes, or, or other psalms which open with a lament or, or open themselves with a question. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? No, this psalm opens with an invitation. Look at it with me in verse 1. Hear this, O peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. The psalm begins with a universal appeal to all peoples. He's saying to all of Israel but also to all of the world to, to lean in, listen, to hear what it is he has to say. He calls people from all social classes. It says that he has wisdom for them. This opening is like most of the wisdom literature in the scriptures. It is speaking to you and I and to everyone in our common humanity. It isn't just to Israelites and their special relation and their bond, the covenant with God. And it isn't just to Christians either in our relationship with Christ, but it is speaking to every single person. That's why it says in verse 2, both low and high, both rich and poor, everyone lean in, listen to what it is the psalm has to say. It wants to catch the ear of the world because what he has to say is of most importance. And these opening verses will play a key part in actually understanding the interpretation of the entire psalm as it prepares to take up as its full value rather than some particular piece of advice for only certain people groups or certain situations. No, he's saying, listen, everyone, listen up. This applies to all of life. 
And notice all the wisdom terminology that the psalm uses here. Verses 3 and 4 specifically. He says, my mouth speaks wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Verse 4, listening to a proverb, the author here is promising that what he is about to say is something wise. And he will give the understanding of it. And he will finally solve the riddle. The riddle which the psalm takes up as its main point has to do with the prosperity of the wicked. Now, if you've read the book of Proverbs or any of the other wisdom literature, you will know that it is filled with themes related to how the wise ones experience the blessings of wealth and the wicked will experience the judgment of God. So that's how the psalm opens. It's opening with a call to you and I to, to lean in, to listen to what he has to say. The next section of the psalm begins to solve the riddle, which he mentions in verse 4. And he does this by showing that those who have placed their hope in their treasures have misplaced their hope. Notice the next section begins with a question. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? You see the question that's been burning the psalmist's mind. This question's been troubling him. You see, he's been surrounded, like you and I, by, by wicked people. These wicked people who tried to cheat him, who trust in their own wealth and who boast in their own abundance. He has went through some dark days. And this has produced in him a great fear. But it isn't a good and healthy kind of fear, like, like when we say fear the Lord. It's this type of anxiety about understanding the cosmos, this understanding of, of meaning and the destiny of life. If you read Ecclesiastes, you'll understand that uh, this is very much similar and akin to that kind of thinking. It's like he doesn't understand. It's a type of hard situation which caused some to lose their faith in God and in the scriptures entirely. I wonder, have you ever had a situation like that? Have you ever had something happen in your life that you look upon it and say, well, this obviously proves that God is not real, or that if he is, then he doesn't care for me. You see, the fear the psalmist is struggling with here is a fear so great that it shakes the foundations of his faith. And if we are honest with ourselves this morning, I imagine there are some of us in the room who have seen storms in this life that have caused us this type of deep-seated existential crisis of faith. Perhaps some of you even now can speak of a single event or circumstance that has caused you to doubt the goodness of God and to this day you still doubt it. So being in this moment of deep seated anxiety and fear the psalmist asked a very simple and yet profound question. Why should I fear? You see, the human nature and tendency is towards fearfulness. You, you know this, right? Like a cat who, when, when you walk in the room, and you go, the cat loses its mind, jumps up, freaks out. Skittish by nature, we are also prone to fear in times of trouble. Things go wrong, our, our plans don't work out, we receive bad news from the doctor. Our very natural human gut instinct reaction is to fear. And so I want you to notice in verse 5 this massive upheaval of that natural tendency. He asked the question, why should I be like this? 
In the words of the great theologian of our day, KB, this psalm is saying, I doubt my doubts. What is it that calls the psalmist to begin to ask the question? Notice with me in verse 7. Truly, no one, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The question, why should I fear, is answered by showing that wealth cannot deliver from death. No amount of money can ever deliver a human life from death. And in verse 11, he gets on to uh, saying that even though some perpetuate their memory by naming their lands after themselves, everyone eventually dies and leaves their wealth to another. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will most likely look at verse 8 where it says the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. You'll be like, oh man, praise God for that because, you know, Jesus is our ransom. He is. That would be a good and right and gloriously true thing to say amen to. But for a moment, let's try to understand what the psalmist is saying and thinking. You see, the logic of his argument is this. I should not be afraid of those who are cheating me because every human will die. That's what he's saying. And we know every human will die because they cannot give of their money enough to add more days to their lives. So in order to understand this idea of ransom in verse 7 and 8, we first need to understand, well, what's he, what's he talking about giving this money uh, to, to add more time uh, to it? Flip over to Exodus real quick. Just, just a quick little flip over to Exodus. Keep your finger there. We're going to come back here. Exodus chapter 21. You see, in order to understand, what is he talking about? Uh, why is he saying all this about, like, you can't actually buy back more time? Uh, we need to understand, where does this idea of ransom come from? Verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice. So where did this idea of ransom come from? Exodus chapter 21, you see here, Moses is given the rules about what happens when an ox, if you have an ox and this ox kills a man on the street, what happens? That's Exodus 21. Look at verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, here's what shall happen. The ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. Look, look. the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So he's saying, okay, if, if you have an ox and it walks up and kills your neighbor on the street, you are to put that ox to death and, and not use it for any gain, but simply kill the ox. But the owner of the ox, you're, you're good to go. It's not your fault. Look at verse 29, though. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, like if he's done this before, homie, and its owners have been warned, like, like you know that your ox is, is prone to killing folk, and you don't do anything about it, verse 29, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, but notice here, its owner shall also be put to death. Like you knew better. Why didn't you stop this fool? But look at verse 30. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. This idea of a ransom, this price to be paid, like there could have been a price placed on the man's life to where if he had enough money, he would actually be able to escape the punishment and actually redeem his life. 
This is where the idea of ransoming comes from. So the psalm, going back to Psalm 49, is saying that there is a ransom imposed on you and I, on all people, evil people, poor people, rich people. He's saying that there is uh, no amount of money, like there is no uh, verse 30 of Exodus 21 for us in life. We cannot give enough money for the redemption of our life whenever it's imposed on us. Here's what he's saying. He says, death is imposed upon all of us. There is not a ransom which we can give to buy our own redemption. That is, we will all surely die. He sums this up in verse 10 back in Psalm 49. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that their place forever is the grave. These are grim verses about the reality of the finality of death. I was chatting with another friend just a few uh, days ago over coffee, and his daughter, who is um, maybe around 10 years old, uh, he, he mentioned that she's constantly, as of late, being mentioning their, their, their late grandmother, who deceased some years ago, and how she keeps going on and keeps bringing her up in conversation, keeps talking about her. And so my friend went to a counselor and said, hey, should we be concerned, like, what's going on here? The counselor said, well, it's about this age that, that children begin to understand the finality of death. And so it's normal for them to talk about those who they will never see again or to begin talking about death experience as uh, in general. And this is true, isn't it? The problem is that we don't often stop after we turn 10 or 11 or 12 to consider death in our day and age because we want things to be lighthearted. We want things to be comedic. We want things to be inspiring. And yet do you notice here what the psalmist is doing? He's using the finality of death as a reason for not fearing. You see, our day and age, by all uh, metrics, seems to be experiencing higher levels of fear, higher levels of crippling anxiety, higher levels of depression than any other uh, age of humanity. Now, you might say, well, yeah, Pastor, it's because people watch Fox News and they believe everything, and which I would say you're partially probably correct. But I wonder... Could it also be because we have pushed out of our minds and out of our lives one of the great truths of the universe, which is the reality that we will all die? Every single one of us, every single person you know will one day die. Every evil person you know will one day be no more. Pastor, you're getting a bit morbid here, aren't you? If you're thinking that, then you're only proving that you are a product of our times. Because the psalmist is using death as a tool to dissuade his fears. He ends it with verse 12 here. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. You see, he's driving home the main point here. Humans and beasts all die does not matter how much wealth or fame or power or prestige someone has because none of it will remain. Even for the wealthy, death is the final word. 
point of verses 5 through 12. Let's look at 13 through 20 here, and then we'll close. I was told I went long last week, so I'll try to go longer this week. The final section of this psalm makes the same point as the previous section, which is that the wealth cannot take, the wealthy cannot take their wealth with them. But the emphasis is on the false understanding and the false security that wealth produces in people. Look at verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The author here is saying that it's, it's a foolish confidence. You see, they, they, they see and they know that all of us are going to die. And yet they become foolish even though the people who are following them are boasting about them. He says, like, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. You see, those who um, claim to need no God will all one day be led by someone, either by the Lord or by death. You see verse 14 in there, it says, death shall be their shepherd. There's only like maybe one or two other places where in all the Old Testament scripture that death is personified. This is one of them. Death shall be their shepherd. You see, we're all being led by something. The question is, by whom? Those who do not think they need a divine shepherd will end up with a shepherd whose name is death. Look at verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Selah. So this is, uh, there's, there's a lot of debate, I don't know how much you're aware of this, around whether or not the Old Testament actually speaks about uh, life hereafter. Right? You get into talking with some, uh, some Jewish folk, or uh, that they begin to say, yeah, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that it actually mentions life after death, and yet this would be uh, one of the points where we're like, actually it is here. Because the psalmist here seems to be saying that there is life after death. There is some sort of resurrection after death. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Verse 16, this is the, his, his final uh, command on you, the imperative of the text to the question, why should we be afraid? Verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though... He, you get praise when you do well for yourself. His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. You see, wealth brings praise from others in verse 18 and gives a false sense of security to people in verse 13 with the result that they end up with a distorted view of life. Look at verse 20. It's the last verse of the psalm, but it, if you've been paying attention, it, it sounds oddly familiar. Verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. This verse drives home the point that a human being who does not understand the true meaning of wealth and life and death is no different from the beast who also live within the horizon of this life. The psalmist answers the why question, uh, verse 5 and verse 16, with do not be afraid. This is the admonition given in verse 15, which is a strong confession of faith. And is the answer to the riddle, which he mentions in verse 4. Only God is able to ransom a life from death. Did you notice the distinction between 
verse 20 and verse 12. Look at them again closely. Man in his pomp is like the beast that perish. And then verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. You see, what he's saying here, this is why this is a wisdom psalm, is like you can see and understand, you can see and know every one of us will die. But if you don't understand how should that then affect how we live here and now, then you've missed the whole point and you're just like the beast of the field. So you say, okay, pastor, the end of the text, now what? How is this relevant for us today? Because we live on this side of the cross, we then know how to interpret verse 15. Look at it again. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. All Old Testament saints were only saved by one way. Does anybody know what that way is? the same way you and I are saved. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only they didn't have a name to put it. You see, this psalm and this verse uh, underlines and uh, highlights for us how exactly were old people in the Old Testament saved. They were saved by looking forward to the day when God would ransom our souls. This verb, ransom, redeem, is used exclusively of the Lord in Deuteronomy. As the one who ransomed Israel from Egypt, it is also used for the redemption of the firstborn through the payment of a price or the substitutionary death of an animal. These regulations are given in the context of the exodus from Egypt. You see, Israel was God's firstborn. That's what Exodus chapter 4 says. And because Egypt would not, Israel's first, would not let Israel's firstborn go, the Egyptians would then lose their firstborn in the tenth plague. Thus, Israel must redeem her firstborn. The payment of a price was enough for this redemption. But the redemption that Psalm 49 is talking about is a redemption from death. Only God could provide this redemption. God's plan of redemption, which is highlighted in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, is accomplished through God's own firstborn, Jesus Christ. So I had Colossians 1 read this morning. God the Father provides for this redemption by sending his own son to be the perfect ransom. No other price but the death of his son, the perfect sacrifice, could redeem mankind. Jesus Christ, in his life and death, fully satisfied the justice of God so that sinners like you and I could be delivered. It is the work of Christ as our priest who offers himself as a sacrifice combined with the person of, of Christ as God that makes our redemption possible. You see, Christ was both priest and God. If Christ were not a human being, he could not be a priest. And as priest, he is able to sympathize with us in our struggles concerning the prosperity of the wicked, for he himself was poor, while others lived in palaces. He became poor, that you and I might become rich. He would have faced death with the confidence expressed in Psalm 49, verse 15. If Christ were not God, though, he could not provide the payment that is sufficient for our salvation. His resurrection seals our redemption and assures us of a future life of victory in the presence of God. God will one day take you and I to be with himself. If a person trusts in their wealth, they have a false sense of confidence and understanding 
but the cost of salvation. Those who have a false confidence and understanding is no different from a beast that perishes because he lives only in the horizon of this life and not the next. You see, going back to those deconstructionists I mentioned in the beginning, one of the things I just don't understand is how they think that Christians like you and I don't actually wrestle with the hard things of life. I don't know if it's because I didn't grow up in church or, or just the way that my brain is wired to be logical and like math and numbers just come easy to me. I know it's a blessing. But my whole Christian life has been trying to understand these hard things that I see around me. How do we deal with the suffering every day that we see around us in light of the fact that God is good? To the deconstructionist who said uh, the, the church never seemed to answer these questions, my retort would only be, this is the only questions we're seeking to answer. And we answer it with this verse, Psalm 49, verse 15, but God. God alone who can provide the ransom. And we should use death as a tool to dissuade our fears about the suffering inflicted upon us. As the psalmist did, we should reflect often on the reality that, that we will all one day die. Not to be morbid or Debbie Downer on the reality that it's true. And it's coming quicker than all of us might imagine. Therefore, since this is true, as the psalmist says, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Father God, we thank you for today. Lord, it is a odd Thing for us to think, meditate on, reflect upon death. And yet, like the psalmist is doing here, we, we should do it. Because in it, we're reminded of the fact that you alone are in control. We're reminded that the, our worst enemy has no power over us. Lord, that we should not fear the one who can kill only the body, but we should fear the one who can kill both the body and the soul. Lord, may we be reminded of this this morning. May we be changed this week, whatever the hardships that we face. Whether it be the wicked people around us, the wickedness in our own souls, Father. May we be reminded, Father, that you reign supremely, and may we end all of our meditations upon death, not with despair or depression. But may we end our reflections and meditations on death with understanding that you have saved us from it. Pray you change us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.